My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Hilder. Hey, welcome back to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. This week on the show, I am joined by my friend Jarvis Tarvenier of Woods. You know his long-running Woods project, alongside Jeremy Earle, of course, and you know Woodsis, their record label and festival, which returns September 23rd through the 24th, upstate with Kevin Morby, A.V. Tear, Taper's Choice, Anna St. Louis, Natural Information Society, Kurt Vile, Scientist, DJ Aquarium Drunkard, that's our own Justin Gage, plus so many more. The band also just released a glowing new album, Perennial, which casts their sound in a gentle, rambling mode. Jarvis and I were members alongside William Tyler and Sadie Sartini-Garner, who've both appeared on this pod in a book club through much of the pandemic. We read selections from authors like J.G. Ballard, Casey Limone, Eve Babbitts and others and we had a really good time and got to know each other very well so this episode felt like a reunion more like a catch-up than a proper interview which is uh, something I love when that happens on this show before we get to it though I hope that you will give me a second to share a quick a couple of announcements I will be in Los Angeles on September 23rd and the 30th on the 23rd you can catch me with Hathaway and Psychic Temple at Gold Diggers in East Hollywood. And on September 30th, Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions is hosting a live podcast taping at Manly P. Hall's Philosophical Research Society with Matt Marble discussing his fantastic book about Arthur Russell, Buddhist Bubblegum. You can find ticket links and more info at Aquarium Drunkard. I hope you will join us. Transmissions is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. So if you like what Aquarium Drunkard does and you want to support this show, you can head over to the Patreon and pledge a couple bucks. Let us know that you dig what Aquarium Drunkard is up to and want to support us in our continual mission to bring cool sounds direct to you. All right, let's get into it. Jarvis Tarvenier here on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions.
All right, well, we're getting into it right now. Jarvis, thanks so much for being here on Aquarium Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. Thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, you know, the book club, uh, it's funny that we were that, that came up, but I was thinking about it, and, and every member of the book club now, with you being here, has been on transmissions. So here we go. Now we've completed the circle. Oh, Sadie was on previously, as was William a number of times. So, we, So we've done it. Nice. Well, I'm, I'm honored to be the yeah, last. Yeah, I mean, one of the I book club. I don't I didn't want to tell those two that I saved the best for last, but uh, I did. No, I'm <laughs> just uh, just goofing around. But yeah, the book club got me through the pandemic. I mean, it's one of the things, one of the bright spots. It, when I look back on it, it's it's funny the way time, you know, like the last two years have like zoomed by in such a strange way. The same way that the years before were weird, but in a different fluctuation i don't know how to kind of weird. a different kind of weird um but when i look back on that time it's like yeah the book club was such a great way to connect with people and explore ideas and topics that uh you know we had or hadn't to varying degrees and and it was really fun doing that i really and i didn't i didn't really know any of you guys i knew william a little bit right yeah i but i, I came into that because Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkards, Justin Gage put it together and then bailed at the last minute. <laughs> he bowed out. And I was like, oh, I got to do this book club with people I don't really know and it's pandemic and I don't want to do anything. Yeah. But you did. And we had a good time. It was amazing. Yeah. Read some good books. Yeah, we read some great books. We read who... And we, we would sometimes get on Zoom without... Like, nobody read the book. I was yeah. like, do you want to just get on Zoom tonight? <laughs> Yeah, I know we definitely had those those moments. And then I think that was the sort of the demise of the book club was at some point the reading just... My child. Yeah, uh, well, I just think it was in general at some point the reading just became like everybody's figuring things out, you know, and it's like everybody's interests have maybe shot in varying d directions. But it's all it's all cool because it's so great to get this chance to catch up. I've been listening to the new record uh, an awful lot. Cool. I gotta say, I really love the instrumentals on it, especially, I like White Winter Melody a lot. Uh, Thanks. But I really like The Wind again. I think that's like my new favorite song. Okay, I mean, this is when I pretend like I know which one that is. That's the, 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 well, both. There's whistling. That's the one with whistling. Yeah, yeah. Who's whistling there? I think that's John Andrews. That's John Andrews. It's great. Yeah, it was Jeremy and John Andrews, the three of us, yeah, or made the record. And is that uh, uh, on the pedal steel? Is that Connor Gallagher? It is, yeah. Um, we were finishing up the record in LA, and he came in. Yeah, that's great. Ish. He's somebody who I mean, I saw him like a, a few years back. Maybe it was like 2017, which is more than a few years back now that I say it. Um, I saw him play with Calexico, uh, uh, the, oh, wow. the great show. And I thought, holy crap, this this guy's great. And I've seen him play so many cool things since, which I, I'm a big fan of his playing. And his playing on that song in particular is really, really lovely. I love the zone that you guys are in there. It's like, it's not Exotica, but it's Exotica adjacent. You know, it's like somewhere like Western themed spaghetti. I don't know. Cool. Why'd you like that one? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, his playing is great too. He's somebody who's good at their instrument, but also always just comes up with like little earworms. Yeah. You know, like yeah. little catchy things. Some people are just good at the instrument and it just kind of floats by. 
you know, that's a quality that a lot of this record has, I think, right? This sort of, this feeling of there's not, uh, sometimes the, the changes are kind of minimal and there's a lot of room for just little earworms, you know? And even the jammier sections, which there are some some pretty uh, white winter me- melody, there's some Jerry Garcia-esque. I don't know if there's an actual... <laughs> What is the pedal called? The uh, Moger Foger? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. I don't think we use one. I of don't those. think it's that, but it's it's a sound that's adjacent to that. an auto wah. Maybe an auto wah. Maybe it. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know if we use one. Definitely some wah. I mean, it's it's uh, the manual wah. Manual wah. Yeah. Yeah. The tones are 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 fantastic. What was so this started with like loops that Jeremy had had made. Yeah, he was, I oh mean, I wish I remembered the pedal he was using because it's this huge four-track recording pedal thing. Mm. Um, but yeah, he was making loops uh, in his, at home in upstate New York. And we did, we jammed in New York for like a day, the three of us. Yeah. Just kind of kicking around ideas just to shake off the, shake off the cobwebs. So had he, did he send you some of those loops to almost sort of he initiate did. the process? What did you think when you first heard them? And um, they were cool. I mean, he sent me these loops and this was still, I mean, I guess pandemic was winding down, but you know, he's just at home, like blasting them out of a guitar amp and then just playing drums over them. Yeah. So a lot of them, like I was into the vibe, but I couldn't really get a sense of what it would become. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the loops, they're not, a lot of them are rhythmic, but some of them didn't need specifically to match up to, to a grid or anything. Mm. Some, some of them are just kind of floating yeah. and just set a vibe. Yeah. So there are a couple that, that I, I put into the computer and chopped up and was like, let's play to this. But um, even then it was pretty loose, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's really cool to... Like another side, it's pretty rhythmic with that loop. I really love that one. That one almost reminds me... Uh, I don't know why Pink Floyd came to mind, you know? Uh, I don't know why that was what I heard, but I sort of had a... I sort of got a Pink Floyd vibe there. Maybe just... I love it. Uh, you know, sort of a progressive orchestral 70s vibe. I mean, it's 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 great. It's a really, really good... Um, that's a great song. And I love the, you know, I, I think what you're saying, it's, it's interesting because sometimes people think a lot about sort of playing to the grid versus not. And it's cool to remember that you can just utilize both. There's no like inherently right way to approach it. Both. No, I mean, I think anything with recording when you're doing something just cause you think you're supposed to. Yeah. That's when it gets a little weird. Right. And, and sometimes I do it too. You just do it out of habit. But if you're like, wait, why are we doing this to a click? Was there like a specific, <laughs> were we having timing issues? Right. Is someone in the band not, I mean, this is not targeted at Woods, but you know, sometimes I record, a, I record other bands. And yeah. if the drummer isn't amazing, or if it's just the person who wrote the song is just doing a quick drum beat to hold it down, you know, sure, then it makes sense. Yeah, that's something that I guess must be a real necessity of your job when you are in like producing roles, right. Is like the ability to walk into a room full of people and sort of just figure out what needs to happen in order for the, yes, it's a big part of the job. When did that, I mean, you've been, I know you've, you've worked obviously a ton over 
many, many years with a lot of different people in lots of different capacities, you know, either as a member of the band or a producer, you know, an engineer, anything like that. But I wonder, like, when did you first get a sense that that was something that you were drawn to, a role that you were, were well-suited to? How did that sort of reveal itself to you in your recording career? Definitely slowly. But when I was younger, I loved cassette four-track recording and even whatever, like cassette karaoke machines that a friend of mine had with double deck and you can record with a microphone and... Oh, that's awesome. You know, record drums and just keep overdubbing. Yeah. So I was always into shit like that. But, um, and then I went to school for recording, but I didn't really learn a lot. It was more, for me, it was more social. It was an art school. So I was playing in bands on campus and using the studio, but I wasn't really seeking the knowledge that, sure. you know, now I, I need every day. <laughs> uh, you had to reteach yourself later? Yeah. Yeah. And often probably Definitely. on the job, right? Not even reteach, just teach. Yeah. <laughs> I did not absorb it. So is that that's when you first met uh uh James Toth? Yes. Yeah. I did. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny thinking about like I feel like while we were in the thick of our book club, he was releasing those Toth Zone podcast episodes. Oh yeah, that's right. Which were great. I mean, some of my favorite music podcasting, period. You know, I thought those were masterful, really. And he, like, so uniquely him, a, totally. a very one-of-a-kind individual with a very idiosyncratic and singular worldview, which is what makes him so, you know, such a great artist. But, you know... um yeah, and I think that was supposed to be a book, and you broke it up into the chapters into different episodes. Yeah, yeah, and then I think it w went off book a little bit, but had uh, for some more episodes. But anyway, so the whole time that yeah. we're reading, you know, uh, books and and talking about, you know, uh, like as soon as I say this, like everything slips right out of my head. Like I couldn't remember a single uh, author's name that we read, although I remember all the books individually. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, pe people would ask me about the book club, and I'd be like, ah. <laughs> would you read? Be like, oh. <laughs> I feel the exact same way right right now. But um, but anyway, so we're reading stuff, and I'm hearing James tell all these stories, and and knowing that some of those stories you were there, right? Like you know, you guys started playing. Yeah, there was a lot from the the wooden wand of the vanishing voice tours we did yeah and so I mean, when did when did you when did you i mean you started did you start playing with him pretty much right as soon as you met him no it, it took a while Took a while yeah i kind of i feel like we're the same age but he, he seemed older maybe he started a year before me sure sure um and his music knowledge was just you know his record collection was more impressive than mine <laughs> so i was always just i felt intimidated yeah sure I was like, I'm just listening to 90s indie rock still, and he's just all over the place. Who who were some of the bands for you uh, that you're talking about for there? Me? 90s indie rock, in, yeah. In high school, into college, you know, uh, Archers of Loaf, Pavement. Yeah. Super Chunk. Yeah. That scene. Sonic Youth was huge for me. Yeah. I was also really yeah. in Eric's trip. Did you have Stopover? So I had those, and then, like, I have a brother who's two years older. So we would kind of like buy records and trade them. So like he was more Black Flag and I was more Sonic Youth and Pavement. Cool. And then we would trade. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's, I mean, that's like, that's such cool stuff to be into. Were you, were you into music before? Like, even though they seem pretty linked now, but at the time it was like, sure. All their music, so. No, yeah, for sure. For sure. And I'm sure that like James obviously would have had that stuff covered too he was like listening to that stuff he understood that but then had oh yeah but then had taste that was like a lot wider right yeah he liked jazz <laughs> i was like i know nothing about jazz well i mean we're i remember we're, he had like sun city girls records and i was like what is that i thought it was like a girl group or something i was like this guy's cool he listens to girl groups <laughs> i mean girl groups are are great and as our son yeah, sun city I, I wasn't there yet. yeah yeah no for sure for sure were you, what was it like for you, you know, those tours when you guys are in a van together? I mean, was that a situation where you were hearing stuff for the first time sometimes or um, by that point were 100%. you, yeah? Yeah. I was just talking about this yesterday. It was funny. I, I met a, a this German woman whose dad or stepdad was in agitation free. Oh, cool. And it just brought back, I was like, like those wooden wand tours yeah. and just getting down to, to lots of records. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Lots of differences. Even like, I never dove deep into Fleetwood Mac. They were always around. Yeah. But that was definitely a time of discovery and just living in the van, reading books, listening to records. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds idyllic when you put it that way. I mean, and, I and I'm sure that at the time it, there were moments that weren't idyllic, but you know. I mean, I was young. I was having a great time. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely got to account. I mean, we're going on tour in a couple of weeks. That's what I'm looking forward to. I'm like, I can just listen to full records, read books. Well, my first tour was actually was with Jeremy. I just graduated college. He was still, we met in school too. He was a year younger than me or is a year younger than me, but you know, um, yeah. So he was still going there. I graduated. I was playing in a band called I'm the Resurrection uh hardcore thrash I, I don't really know i believe after the stone roses song um uh, yeah we'll have to ask them <laughs> but um uh so I, yeah i did my first tour jeremy came on as a bass player just for that tour and i'd never been on a tour before i was kind of new to that scene I was like the indie rocker in the band. They were like, play some pretty chords while we do our thing. And uh, yes, it just blew. It was like a very mind blowing experience. So I came back from that tour. I was like, okay, there's this guy, Jeremy. He can play a lot of instruments and he's easy to travel with. And there's this whole scene of like basement shows and blah, blah that I saw, you know, which was mostly hardcore music. But as I was traveling, and I don't think I'd really left New York much at that point, um, which is where I'm from. And, it was just kind of wild to, yeah, to just to just see the different music communities in different towns and and that not every you know in my mind I was very compartmentalized so I was like well these are the hardcore kids and this is this these people like Bell and Sebastian or whatever it was at the time so touring and just meeting people it was very eye opening and I was like oh yeah everyone is like me and they like everything so I could what I'm getting at is that. Hey, let's tour and all these other bands and projects we have. Let's go to these towns. Let's go to these yeah. cities. I remember I had started working at a record store, Zia Records, and uh, the first Woods record ended up on uh, like a listening station. 
And oh, wow. what's funny is I semi remembered the band's name because there was an early single on a local label here from Phoenix, Gilgongo Records. Gilgongo, yes. James Fella. So I sort of semi knew the name and remember this feeling of like, what is this going to be? Because exactly to your point, a band that was on Gilgongo could be an indie pop band or it could be like a harsh noise band or it could mm -hmm. be a screamo band. You know, I don't know yeah. exactly what I'm in for, but I remember putting the headphones on and it was at Rear House and thinking like, wow, this is such a cool, a cool record. I mean, yeah. and then you get involved with Woods just a little after the, yeah. not, not right at that, not right from the jump. That was, for, for me, like my experience of it was like, that was a really fun time in music. Cause that's, I mean, I guess we're jumping ahead to like 2006 or yeah, so. Yeah, it's about 2006. And yeah, it it did seem like everything was kind of cross-pollinating, or at least the, the people I was connected to. Yeah. I was going through town and this playing with hardcore bands, and then one guy was like, I kind of got this noise band, or I have this like improv folk band. Right. And it just sort of opened up. So you had labels, like smaller labels like that, that were just kind of all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, to me it was such, I mean, and like, uh, just sort of hearing you talk about being on the road with James makes me think about, you know, those early days in the record store for me with like every new friend that I was meeting, putting stuff on, you know, like uh, my friend Mark being like, you got to listen to Boris, you got to listen to Sun City Girls, you got to listen to, uh, you know, comets on fire all this stuff and it's just like it was such an incredible experience of like just getting turned on to all this stuff and reading like arthur magazine you know and sort of like <laughs> yeah assembling basically uh, a sense of all this cool adventurous music that was happening that like you said was different in so many ways but then shared a strangely unifying ethic somehow you know uh kind of Impossible to put your finger on, though. Uh, but it was such a yeah. cool moment. Yeah, it was. I mean, for for me, that that's when definitely things came together. And then around that time, I felt less alone. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. yeah, that's that's rad. You know, and similar when we when we think about kind of like Woodsist and the early incarnations of stuff, I think about how that diversity has always been a part of the band's identity too right there's kind of like mm -hmm. indie rock stuff there's uh jazzier stuff there's uh, there's room for all sorts of stuff it doesn't seem like there was ever really much worry about borrowing no i mean that was, that was definitely part of the fun yeah borrowing from different sounds yeah yeah just hearing different records and getting inspired and trying to make something kind of like it and then it veers off into its own its own lane but that's that's the way it usually just having a project woods was always and still is just like a project where you can kind of do anything like you just trust the people in the band and the people you're inviting to be in the room with you know like we trust each other there's a shared aesthetic and we're like yeah yeah if it goes off the rails too much we won't use it <laughs> uh we recorded sure. a lot of music for the new record yeah and some of it we're just in the control room laughing our asses off was <laughs> back to it is in his having a great time being like we're never gonna no one's gonna hear this but right i mean d was a lot of it jamming yes you know that was that was sort of the intention for this record you know it's funny because for the last record we had a couple songs yeah we recorded just songs and then towards the end ended up jamming and then kind of molding the jams into things 
And this time it was like, what if we just start with that as yeah, as the goal, you know? Yeah. It's funny because I went back and was sort of reading some older interviews and there's interviews where you talk about, you know, jamming or dipping your toes into the jamming waters years back, you know? <laughs> and that's funny because we were talking about 2006 and reading Arthur Magazine and of course- We always jammed. <laughs> well, we always jammed. Well, but I mean, that's the thing about it is like, obviously there was such a different, when Arthur- wrote about the Grateful Dead, it felt like a permission slip a little bit, right? And it was kind of a reminder, mm -hmm. at least for me, that like Greg Ginn was like a deadhead or that the Kirkwoods, like the Meat Puppets, deadheads, uh, Sun City Girls, you can find them doing dead songs early on. And it's like- I mean, when I met Jeremy, that was the thing. I was like, yeah. he's in these hardcore bands. He's also into some indie rock stuff. But he likes the Grateful Dead. Yeah. What was your relationship with the dead like at that point? Did you ever, did you have that dividing non line, non-existent? Yeah, I, you know, I heard, I've heard some live things that I thought were cool. Yeah. Reminded me of Sonic Youth when I was young. I was like, hey. Another, uh, Steve, uh, I mean, Lee Ronaldo specifically, big dead, dead guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. And listening to, maybe it was Live Dead or, uh, which I still love. Oh, it's a great one. Yeah. Great one. I'm kind of a, I'm, here's the, the weird way I am about the dead is that I really love the dead, but I also, I lack a little bit of the completest, uh, like ethic that some dead fans are, are, are driven by, you know, I'm bad about remembering super specific stuff sometimes. Uh, but I have eras oh, I like. So I am with every band. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I love Bob Dylan, but if you were to be like, which record? I'd be like, oh, fuck. I mean, I can... Yeah, I pull it up on Spotify. I can do it, right? Like, and I have to sometimes when I'm writing. <laughs> you know, I can do it if if I need to. But they're one of those bands that it it seemed to me like there was the uh, you're not supposed to like the Grateful Dead thing somewhere along. I encountered that idea at some point, right? In my sort of nascent punk rock or alternative rock. I remember there being specifically that Kurt Cobain had expressed a lot of like really anti-Jerry sentiment, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, and so that somehow sort of set the tone. But for me, when I did start to engage with the dead and listening to stuff, uh, you know, early 70s stuff or late 70s stuff, I, I just, it all sounded so cool to me. And, uh, and then my uncle gave me a bunch of tapes, but they, because he was a deadhead, he is a deadhead. My Uncle Rich, he gave me all these tapes, but it was all, like, 90s stuff. So I'd put it on, it would all be that, like, MIDI sound, you know? The MIDI guitar and the yeah. MIDI keys and stuff. And that sounded so, like, bothersome to me. And now it's starting to sound better as time goes on. You know what I mean? It's, it's just the the cruel relationship our culture has with nostalgia, right? Is that... Yeah, I guess, yeah. There's no outrunning it. Then on itself. I was going to say maybe it was age. Someone told me a long time ago when I first started listening to Van Morrison, they were like, you might think his older records are like cheesy, but when you're the age he was for every record, you'll get it. Oh boy. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know if that's true or not, but I, I like that idea. I mean, all I can say is that right before uh, the pandemic, I saw, I got to see Van Morrison in Las Vegas in February of 2020. <laughs> And uh, he's definitely in sort of a zoot suit blues man era. Um, it's a very... Um, I think I saw him on the same tour. Did you? Yeah. I, I will say it was great. I mean, I did enjoy it. He 
I couldn't tell if he was angry or enjoying himself uh, at a, for a lot of it. Um, Maybe a little both. I think that Van's a man of very uh, layered and complex uh, emotions and performative <laughs> stylings. Uh, but I uh, no, I mean, I that was the other thing too. It was such an annoying thing for me on a personal level, uh, and probably potentially he did some damage to his to the world by being so like weird about vaccines and stuff uh, and the lockdowns because I went through one of my most profound van phases in the early days of the pandemic where I was just listening to those eighties records, the super synthed out ones. Do you know what I'm talking about? In our Maybe you'll get to be his age that he is now. And you'll be like, I kind of get the anti-vax stuff. I- <laughs> well, I, Hey, Hey, I can't for going by this theory. This person, I don't even remember who they were told me 20 years ago. If we're taking that as gospel, then exactly. I mean, we'll have to, we'll have to see. Uh, uh, I guess I should be so lucky to live as, as old as van has, but, um, but it's funny because that jam adjacent thing, you know, it's like, it's cool that you guys are able to embrace the jamming something like that, that gets to the heart of what I was talking about earlier is that, and I also, when Woods first started, I never, I didn't really equate it to like the dead jamming equals the dead. Yeah. It was like, uh, for me, it was like jamming velvet underground well the velvet underground can uh you know uh jesus and not jesus and mary chain more like uh yeah there's tons of stuff that that, that i i don't know why i said jesus and mary chain but uh interesting i was was like where's he going i wish that they jammed a lot more (laughs) but uh no so yeah i i know exactly what you mean there's like a lot there's a lot more you know the, the the Velvet Underground and the Grateful Dead are so fun. They are so strangely cosmically connected. It seems you know what I mean. Both from Warlocks. the Warlocks thing, of course, but then that there are parallel sounds at, at times. You know what mm-hmm. I mean. So yeah, when I think of that of Live Dead, yeah, some of the jams on that, yeah, or certain songs on in a while. So, um, certain but. certain songs on Loaded wouldn't sound completely out of. Uh, place on some dead early dead studio stuff either you know like it's a but so so when did you get into stuff like that when did you kind of make the what what was it because you talked about sort of being like archers of loaf pavement guy who were some of the the bands that cracked open the whole like broader pop world for you specifically when you look back did you say pop world or i mean i just mean the wider world of um record collecting can was a big one for me can yeah yes when i the first time i heard mother sky while driving the van on tour it blew my mind yeah yeah that's 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 awesome i mean yeah i mean i like that that whole record perfect driving music yeah and it was just you know and since we were doing home recording and kind of and reading more about them or just seeing videos i was like oh you can jam and then edit the jam and yeah you know kind of got the got the ideas flowing Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and, as an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. 
A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and, of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. You know, it's funny because one of the things that I, when I look back on all the different work that you've done, I cited, obviously, contributing to an Avalanche's record is such a cool achievement and such an amazing thing because they're a group that more and more I, I keep returning to their work and thinking about the concept of editing, you know, and splicing and collaging and juxtaposing and how those are tools that are so cool and can be utilized so creatively, you know, especially I mean, now. When they're totally. I mean when they're done well, I mean those those records are magical. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it has something to do with creating an almost, it's almost like an alternate sense of time, I think, is something that you're able, when you're able to layer and sort of manipulate things on that level, to me, I feel like that's sort of a part of what's happening. Not necessarily something people aim to do, it's just what happens when you, how do you know when the song is like working, you know, in the studio is what I guess what I'm getting at here. Yeah, geez, I don't know, I'm still thinking about avalanches and and sampling and i mean i when i think about that like hip-hop that whole world you know it's like the the kind of like just the collage aesthetic being able to be as kaleidoscopic as it is in our in our age where that's one reason why like when it comes to like all this new technology and stuff ai and things like that it's not that I I can see all the negative ways that it would work, and I think that most of our existing sort of structures would not be well-suited, you know, by an AI revolution. But I do think people will use these technologies to come up with cool stuff. You know what I mean? Like, I think that it's possible. Uh, Pro AI. I'm not, I don't know. I don't, I feel like I'm, I'm neither pro nor con AI. I yeah, think just it, curious. I just think this, as soon as you can break a technology and use it some weird way, it wasn't meant to be used. You create something cool and I don't know what it will look like. I might be culturally so washed that I won't even recognize what it is when it happens. <laughs> That's entirely That's possible. Not. Like, that'll be the thing where I'm like, I don't understand the world anymore. No, I think it'll, uh, yeah, it it very well could be. It'll be my sign. It very well could be the thing that, it's like that's the scene with Grandpa Simpson where he was like, <laughs> I think Homer says like, you know, you're not with it. And he was like, I was with it. But then they changed what it was. <laughs> and then what it was made me nervous and afraid or something. And I was like, yeah, that, I, I can see that. Yeah. I'm on the way. I'm very well on the way. So, yeah, exactly. That's where I'm going to end up on the. The AI thing is, it'll be the most brilliant thing and it'll look like a like an anime sticker on a car to me. You know what I mean? I got stuck behind a guy, that I, a guy today who had naked anime ladies and also a don't 
tread on me uh sticker and to me the, i found the juxtaposition s- talking about collage right that's mm-hmm. that that they see that seems to track it i don't <laughs> i mean yeah very specific Ow. very specific treading to be avoided there um i don't know but yeah i think that like exactly what you're saying like being able to you know you're so so that's the thing when you when when did you start to feel comfortable calling yourself a, a producer you mentioned that it took a while for you to get comfortable what were the projects where that started to feel like okay i i feel like i know what i brought to the table this time you know and 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 then you know validated that that feeling that you had yeah i mean i had glimpses of it it was it's just it felt it still feels maybe like lofty sometimes as a title yeah does it or like does it because it's different for every job so i'm kind of like what you know what are we doing here and a lot of times i i engineer and, and mix records that i produce so it's just under this whole umbrella of stuff right right like early on i remember doing like an early widow's peak record i think came up pretty well yeah yeah and i you know i was like oh i guess i produced that a little yeah that's i remember i remember that record the, is that the the one with like the the green and black cover do you know what i'm talking about i can't even remember what the cover looks like well i remember yeah but gunshy uh was a song on yeah it. i remember that one. yeah yeah well i could be completely misremembering the cover but i do remember that widow's peak record so um yeah, that's that's great. And so and and but you you mentioned that the term still feels lofty. Uh what what's lofty about it in your in your head? Oh, well, I don't know. That's just that's just insecurity speaking. Yeah. Producer. <laughs> some days I'm a producer, some days I'm a mixer. Yeah. Some days mixer tomorrow I'll be a producer. Yeah. Yeah. And it's good to be able to slip between those different roles because each one I'm sure allows you to bring something different to the project that you wouldn't Totally. Yeah. The more like, I mean, even before the pandemic hit, I I was kind of committed to becoming a better mixer. Yeah. That was a goal. So I did kind of buckle down. I was like, I'm just going to try to take on jobs more just mixing. Um, Yeah. And then getting back into producing after the pandemic, definitely kind of changed even just subtly. Yeah. Yeah. Having better idea what the final picture would look like. Not even just what I wanted the song to be. Yeah. just sonically yeah do, am i being too vague no do you ever into weeds on recording stuff no 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 I, I i'm i'm fascinated about all this stuff and I, I i mean how often are you called on to mix recordings that you didn't record all the time it's, yeah 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 and i mean in that case i mean it, it's easy to see how the recording this stuff that you are part of is in your band you know it's easy to see that and it's easy to see recording friends and stuff like that but then when you're mixing something that somebody else recorded uh that has to expose you to a whole other angle on the finished product right i mean what did you learn about about what you can bring to a record to add more you know what is it clarity atmosphere what are some of the things that you feel like you're most interested in bringing i mean i guess when i first started mixing a lot and i'd get a project maybe sometimes i I would first have to focus on the problems so something wasn't recorded well yeah 
you know, backup vocals are really out of tune and I need to tune them. Yeah. <laughs> just, or, or something, you know? Right. Um, these days I get, I get recordings that are maybe a little better produced. So don't need as much as that. Sure. Sure. But, but um, that definitely first learning how to do that kind of taught me like just what I would need to mix easily and then to maybe make the, make the process like a little transparent yeah from recording to mixing where the rough mixes are almost mixes yeah it could be mixes if, if they had to be yeah yeah and then that's fantastic because you're just yeah i mean because sometimes you do the mix reinvents it that happens but a lot of times for me uh, it, it's i like the process better when i'm recording and moving towards something and you're baking in effects and you're doing and you know you're making those decisions and that's the personality of the song is already baked in there yeah yeah uh i wanted to to go back to another uh collaborator of yours and i was going through your credits and you worked with castanets right ray Raposa, is that right yeah the, really lot like around the wood mondays yeah. yeah how did you cross paths with him uh unfortunately another guy who has yeah. departed yeah i didn't talk to him in a bunch of years but he um he was living in new york and had one record out and contacted he liked woodmon and the vanishing voice yeah he contacted us to be his backing band and we did that on a couple of shows i think some of the other people in the band played with him more than i did um and then we did a tour or two together woodmon the vanishing voice and castanets yeah yeah that was a band that I crossed paths with here in Phoenix, and they played at the local art space where I would see Gilgongo bands and stuff. And I, Trunk Space? Trunk Space, yeah. Were you there? Yeah, we played there. Would it have been like 2007, maybe? By that time, it was probably that like Woods played there. Okay. Or maybe a little later. Maybe 2010, that Woods would have played there. Yeah. Well, I feel like Woods, I mean, I know Woods played Trunk Space. Woods and White Fence. That's somewhere. That sounds. That sounds about right. I. That was such a, a a great. It remains a great venue. They've moved now. They're in a church located in a church. So every time I'm there, I feel like I'm back as like a child in church. Uh, <laughs> but I'm in like the rec room, and instead of board games, it's uh, punk bands. It's cool. I really like <laughs> the vibe over there now. But yeah. Trunk Space was great. And that sort of DIY scene that you're talking about, that's the same circuit, right? House shows, basement shows, weird experimental art spaces. Do you feel like that helped you be less, I don't know, maybe precious about playing music, understanding that it can be done under all sorts of varying conditions? Definitely. I mean, I enjoy it. I mean, in the same way Woods makes all our records ourselves, you know, we used to do it just at home. Yeah. Even though the equipment grew and became like professional equipment, it was still in somebody's house. And still, you know, when we're on tour and we play a smaller city, sometimes you play a space that isn't totally meant to have rock bands. Sure. And I always kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's Jump great. down a bit, try to reset up the PA or something, get too involved because I'm on tour and I'm bored. What's like, what are some of the weirdest fixes that you've ever had to come up with on tour? <laughs> Does anything come to mind? I can't really remember any, but definitely early days, just being at places where they wouldn't mic the drums. And right. I would show them my one mic to like, you could just use one mic. Uh, I got a technique. Yeah. Yeah. Better than nothing. Yeah. 
what is i mean one is obviously the minimum amount of drum drum mics but uh two is pretty good right you can do a lot with two great <laughs> a couple i like four 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 is pretty good <laughs> i mean in some rooms you don't need any for live shows for small diy spaces right well yeah for sure you don't always have to mic this has a lot of floor tom thumping <laughs> in the old days and if that floor tom wasn't cutting through yeah yeah, you wanted to get get a no groove, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, so when you guys do, when Woods does start to break through and have, you know, I'm I'm always interested in getting the perspective of people who've been making music for a while and who have seen sort of the ups and downs and the sea change. But you know, Woods starts to break through and and reach an audience, and you know, how did that? feel for you guys at that point uh and and what what did it look like sort of on on the was it simply a thing where there were just more people at the shows and that was yeah kind of pretty (laughs) you know slow going yeah yeah um yeah it was really because you know the first few records there was very few shows um maybe a tour Hmm. and it wasn't and it wasn't until songs of shame which was the fourth woods record and the second one that I contributed to where we started getting press and like actually touring. And even then a lot of times there's still like DIY spots in some cities. Sure. I mean, I guess we'd be talking trunk spacey era, you know, talking trunk space. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then in those days, you know, we got, and when they did fun, we did open for Dunian for a tour. That was really fun. And we were just chaotic and crazy. Did you guys, cause they, uh, did you do something with them at Marfa Myths as well? Yeah, we we did a we did a collab record, and that's the thing where like basically, Marfa Myths has a, a studio set up or something along those lines, and yeah, there's there's like a, a small studio with with some gear, nothing crazy, but the basics, and um, yeah, they guess they just pair people up and give them four or five days to make something, usually an EP. Yeah. We did, uh, we brought a couple songs and they brought a couple songs and we we're trying to make some songs work. And then we just kind of kept just jamming and making these things and just kind of doing kind of what we do. Yeah. Yeah. I was, at, I saw the live thing that you guys did uh, what was at, at Marfa Myths. Oh, we did. We, we played something live at the end of the week. I have no memory of what that was. You guys played, I, it seemed like just like a wild kind of like freak out. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. I think it was based on one of the things we had recorded, yeah. No, it was great. I really, really dug that though. But, but we did um, kind but, of the thing that we normally do. I'm not sure how they work totally, but we're of jamming and when something works, like, okay, how can we give this some structure? Yeah, that's another can we write like Can we write a hook that kind of comes in and goes and what can we drop in here? Yeah, to me, that's what makes the instrumentals on the newest record so great is that they have a flow and a structure, and it's they're they're like nice spaces to spend time in, but they're they have a sense of direction as well, right? So, I mean, that's the other thing. Just in the same way that it doesn't need to be a dichotomy between you never use the grid and you always use the grid, it can be. There's a lot of different ways that that can present itself. I feel like. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in the early days, we would we would jam and just be like, "Oh, this ten minute jam is just going on the record as is," and I think that that's cool too. Yeah, I mean, for sure, for sure. But now I do I do love having 
the combo of just giving yourself the time and the space to just let music kind of just fall out of you. Yeah. Because, I mean, you're paying for a studio. It's easy. That's why we didn't work in studios for so long, was just to make sure we could, like, tap into that. Right. Just we're inspired, or we're just standing around, and music is just coming out of us, and we're like, I guess... Because, you know, you can go into such preconceived notions of, like, I want to make something that sounds like this. And then you achieve it, and you're like, okay, we made a record that sounds like that other record. Right. <laughs> you know, it doesn't... Which can be that can be great. Yeah. But I just kind of love when you're just in a room and music, like I keep saying, falls out of you. And you're like, I guess that's what it sounds like when the three of us are in a room together. Yeah. And it's right now, you know? And, and I in mean, yeah. And it's gotta be that you're somebody who's been making music with people, people like James, people like Jeremy for a very long time. So, I mean, I have to imagine that all those years play into the interplay in like maybe imperceptible Definitely. ways. I mean, I didn't, I didn't play with James for a very, very long time. Well, so sure. I was really excited to, to get to do that. But yeah, I mean, with Jeremy and John and some of the other Woods guys, um, I mean, that's was the fun of the Purple Mountains record. Right. It was just to be like, here's a new songwriter. But we have, we've been touring and putting out records like crazy for the past six, seven years. So like that whole infrastructure is just there, you know? Right. And it must have been such, I mean, well, obviously to get enlisted to uh, back up David Berman, I mean, it's like, it doesn't get... It doesn't get cooler. It doesn't get more legit. But yeah, I think I think it's pretty cool. But to be able to uh, apply what you guys do to another songwriter's work in general, that must have felt great. And then to be able to sort of walk away from it, understanding there's a thing here that happens that is, you know, getting to experience it in that other way maybe helps reveal it even more. Totally. And I mean, I was definitely nervous. Like, okay, I don't want our thing to impose too much on other people's songs yeah but yeah i left that experience being like nah it's okay you don't have to i don't have to think about it that much is it just because if it's working it's working and you don't have to yeah, worry if you're, about I think it if you're so much excited about it, yeah just like with any record like if you're excited and you're moving towards something yeah you just finish it and be like we're all excited about it yeah yeah you can then go and during the mixing process freak out about it or overthink it but I can't, you can't lie that we were all in the moment experiencing something and, you know, I, overdubs were happening and ideas are flowing and people are jumping in the booth to do backup vocals and just things are happening. Everyone's excited. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I think about like somebody like Neil Young and how his whole idea, he seemed to be somebody who really always wanted to get the idea as close, recorded as close to as its inception as possible, right? Like he mm -hmm. was like, the shortest amount of time between the idea and recording it is the best. And I feel like, you know, that seems like that's part of the ethos for you guys too. Definitely. And I mean, just to touch back on the, like what I was just saying, I still think once something's finished, if you, if everyone, if you agree to not put on the record or anything, that's great. But I just love like fin moving towards something and like finishing it, you know? Sure. And then, yeah, with Woods, Early days, we would write something and just record it right away. But we weren't as good musicians as Neil Young and his band. <laughs> sure, sure. So it's a little rough around the edges. Recorded with one mic in a kitchen. Yeah. But that was definitely our whole our whole motto. That was kind of, for me, it was like the point of that band. 
do you feel to capture that and to capture like the accidents that you know the chaos do you feel like you know the lo-fi term is not a term that people love you know it's um one it's not entirely accurate it certainly doesn't accurately describe the way this new record sounds you know what i mean it's like not lo-fi but what people are responding to is treatment and distressing of sound and creating textures and Mm -hmm. recording textures and all of that stuff i feel like when people talk about lo-fi that's what they mean it just has this like strange relationship to the recording method do you know what i mean yeah i guess like the way like indie rock used to be like independent rock and now it's just <laughs> now the, it's just the lo-fi thing and sometimes i like to just say home recording but now home recording is so advanced that it's almost a different thing sure but um yeah thinking about lo-fi i mean when i was in high school and it was just kids and oh, like older kids in bands who were hip to the four track thing the cassette four track and they were already putting out cassettes and selling cassettes at their shows or seven inches um yeah i mean just how inspiring that was it was the first time where i was like oh this is how you can do this and and make it more real it's like you know yeah i mean i think it's interesting because there's this when when somebody talks about lo-fi there's all these different ways you could look at it you could look at it as a sort of a, a, a quality in terms of the way things sound and right now because home recording is so advanced you could create a very uh lifelike facsimile of sort of like what you once would have had to accomplish just sort of by miking things bad you know what i mean or 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 not not technically correct right so it's it's interesting the way the aesthetic gets baked into the sort of evolution of of the technology itself but what i think is so interesting is that part of what was appealing to you was the lack of barrier to sort of access right you just you realized oh we can just record it yeah we can record it and then not only that but there will be a way for us to immediately start to create right so that was important yeah was key to me just breaking down the barrier of like how this music thing that I love, like, oh, maybe I can be involved in it. And and certain bands kind of poking through into like, or, you know, MTV in the 90s gave me the first glimpse of that. And then, yeah, getting into those early Sebado records, like, but uh, the, like the Weed Forest in is that I've made yeah, that was yeah. like two records put together. Like that and like, you know, the peak guided by voices. Those where it was like, oh, you can just record at home. Right. Or wherever. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's interesting sometimes when I think about like the sort of maybe historical sources that people would draw on. Uh, Often those home recording people would sort of look to obviously the Beach Boys who are sort of using the studio as a instrument, but nonetheless especially as the 70s go on, they get into some very cool, warm, organic, fuzzy tones that I think shape the... But then there are other, of course, people, somebody like Todd Rundgren, another kind of home recording guy, right? Uh, Even if he had a studio. 
I bought Emmett Rhodes uh, NS tens. No kidding. After he passed away. That's mind blowing. I mean, another a, a, he's like one of the paragons. Him and R. Stevie Moore. You know these guys. I think of as just like I wasn't hit to that stuff in high school. I was still, you know, as I was saying, like just so green. So it was, yeah. The way I got into all that, or just got into home recording, yeah, was through more like indie rock and then you know kill rock stars. Uh, you know all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm not even sure what the kill rock star bands. Uh, what they were recording on, but I was pretty obsessed with Heavens to Betsy's record, Calculated. Yeah. And it didn't sound that far off from what me and my friends were doing sonically. Right. And, you know, that song is just, I mean, that album is just great. I love those songs. Um, so, yeah, just little things like that were little clues. And then, like, fast forwarding to Woods, and, I'll, you know, by that time, listening to like Dylan's basement tapes or, uh, even Dead Moon and like when Woods early on, we did try to go to a studio. We did um, the album Songs of Shame. We tried recording that in a studio and then went back to the what we thought were like the home recorded demo versions and just used that instead. And it was, you know, like the studio versions, we couldn't even recognize ourselves. Yeah. It didn't have the right, something got lost in translation. Yeah, like we and we didn't know how to communicate that in a studio to the engineer or like, you know, it was just part of our whole thing. Like we just recorded ourselves and that just sounded right. Yeah, I think that and listening, whatever, like Dead Moon or like I said, the, you know, or just whatever 60s psych garage records we were listening to at the time. A lot of Flying Nun, uh, Mississippi Records, stuff like a lot of those reissues, S.E. Roji. Like it didn't sound, our home recording sounded closer to all those things I mentioned than when we went to a studio. Yeah. Well, I think because it's interesting the way. I want to be associated with this. This is our vibe, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And that to me is because there's a, the, the unique individual touch of the artist that you're talking about comes as much from their sensibilities as oftentimes just not worrying about whether or not what they were doing was correct or professional, it was more mm -hmm. focused on something else, sort of the immediate thing of the moment, which takes us right back to what we were sort of touching on, you know, which I think is like an, a, a really interesting element of it. Totally. I mean, even though like back to like Sabato got it by voices era, listen, like when, when Woods really started getting going, I remember we would, I, maybe I said this before, but we were like, silk screen shirts and listen to alien lanes and drink beer and just make for you know yeah but making the physical records and cassettes and stuff and we were just so into it and it was just like rekindling that love for that stuff i liked in high school kind of for a different different reason well i mean always because the music and the songs were great but realizing the like the genre jumping and just like the compulsive recording and how just all the stuff that gets baked into the album because of that because of that like compulsion to be creative or whatever yeah yeah so yeah listening back to so I, that was definitely a big influence on woods like that idea making albums that were more like collages of just like whatever music comes out of you yeah yeah whatever today you know there's no preconceived like do you know what the album's gonna be 
Yeah, I mean, that's one way of keeping it surprising for yourself. And of course, it's a way of keeping it surprising for the listener, right? Yeah. I mean, surprising yourself, especially as I do so, like much more like production these days. It's easy to map something out ahead of time or just have the vision in your head. And you have all the tools to, once you have the experience, to just make it. Right. And it's so much more, it's just exciting if you can surprise yourself and you can figure out ways to leave something to the unknown. Yeah. And back then it was just all unknown, so. Yeah, and that sense of the unknown makes it into the work, I think, in a way, right? It's like that, it, it, it's like an innocence. Not Innocence is maybe the wrong term, just, but when, you, when you're not worrying or comparing or aiming for anything, you're allowing it to be that. That's, that's a, a, an essential quality. Yeah. I would say innocence. I think that's okay. All right. Well, I'm okay with it. If you're okay with, if I know it tarnishes your uh, your image as indie bad boy. indies bad boys. Yeah, indie rocks bad boys. Woods. <laughs> we were innocent uh, to like professionalism. <laughs> exactly. Operating, operating in a vacuum. Right. 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 Well, and it's so cool because you're talking about sort of a band as a sort of uh, a communal identity, and then of course. All these years later, through the, through the label, through the festival, through everything you do, there's also a sense of that, that a thread that carries from you guys assembling the records and tapes yourself while listening to Guided by Voices and drinking beer, a thread that carries through to now where, you know, you have a cool festival and you're able to bring all these things you love together. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, keeping keeping that that alive that that sense of innocence alive to some extent as much as we can is what is why we keep doing it yeah yeah like for the new record we kind of didn't write any songs going into it jeremy had maybe a couple sketches but just ha going in with that idea was the same thing it was just like a different version of what we used to do of going into a studio not really knowing what what the outcome would be yeah yeah a record i mean we know like the ballpark you know that's one way to keep yourself surprised for sure <laughs> if you don't know well, what it's gonna be and the studio work that we'd worked at there before we used to set up turn jeremy's house into a studio when i had enough gear to right the studio so working in a studio that is in an old house like panoramic house um it's kind of the same vibe Thanks for listening to Transmissions. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I produce, write, and host the show. Transmissions is edited by Andrew Horton. Our show's music comes from Frank Maston. Find more by visiting him on Bandcamp. Our show's executive producer is Justin Gage. Don't miss his radio program, The Aquarium Drunkard Show, on Sirius XMU, channel 35 at 7 p.m. Pacific time each and every Wednesday. Transmissions is part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. Visit the TalkHouse for more interviews, fascinating reads, and podcasts. We will be back soon. Next week on the show, I'm joined by Colleen, a return Transmissions guest, to discuss her synthesis and fantastic new album. 
But for now, be well. This transmission is concluded. <laughs>